Hello and welcome to Tech Beyond the Hype, the podcast that explores the transformative power of emerging technologies in shaping the future of work. This episode is all about artificial intelligence and its potential applications in the field of healthcare, specifically within cardiology. With cardiovascular disease standing as the leading cause of global deaths, claiming a huge 17.9 million lives annually, equivalent to approximately 16% of all deaths, it's imperative that we find new innovative solutions that address the issue of global heart health. Today's guest, Richard Dasselaar, is a digital transformation leader and visionary specialising in cardiology. At the forefront of healthcare ecosystem transformation, Richard works with healthcare providers, international organisations and other stakeholders to drive strategic innovations that harness technological advancements to optimise outcomes and democratise access to care at a global level. Although the context of this episode revolves around healthcare, Richard's insights extend beyond his industry. In particular, I think his expertise in navigating huge, complex global problems and his insights on designing solutions that can get buy-in from a multi-generational workforce will be valuable for leaders across a whole spectrum of industries. Before we dive into the conversation, I have a small request. If you're enjoying this series, please take a moment to like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you prefer to listen. Your support really does mean the world to us and we really want to hear from you and find out what you think. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the show. So Richard, it is a pleasure to have you on board today for World Tech Beyond the Hype. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm humbled to be here. We're going to start by talking a little bit about medical AI and your work. But before we do that, could you just briefly introduce yourself to the audience, tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, thank you. So my name is Richard. I'm from the Netherlands, from a small town next to Amsterdam. I'm a digital transformation and strategy leader in the field of AI, where I focus on superior clinical outcome and a lower cost to care. I do a doctoral degree in digital health strategy, and I'm the section chair of the AI and cardiology working group, where we like to raise the bar on health outcomes. Why cardiology? It's the most costly to society, both in clinical loss of life and cost to the system. So that makes a lot of sense to try to elevate that one. And I love that. I've lived in India before. Absolutely amazing country. Very humbled to live in the United States for a while, close to Miami. I've been the head of marketing for EMEA region when I was 30 or 31 for Zimmer Biomed. I like to listen to music and if I have some time left, I like to go for a run, clear the mind, and talk about uh, the things that I'm passionate about as we have our conversation today. Nice. So this will be a great space for you then if you are big on talking about the things that interest you. Okay. On this podcast, we've had a lot of people talking about digital transformation and AI, but from a very business-oriented perspective and profit-driven. Tell us a little bit about so when it comes to AI in medicine and digital transformation, what in practice, does it look like in the cardiology space? It's an interesting question. Thank you for asking. I'll try to interweave all the variables here. If you look at cardiology, that's the loss of life mainly due to a lack of access to care on one hand, so the social aspects. On the other hand, it's how we need to rethink the ecosystem within both the healthcare domain, 
in our political domain. How can we innovate, if you will, a new world order? And that would go accompanied with a new business model. Any transformation goes as fast as the slowest link in the chain. So if you lower the access to care, there are several drivers where stakeholders need to feel comfortable. We have policymakers, we have for-profit organizations, we have the hospital system in itself. And the key thing in any form of transformation in cardiology the most is that it needs to be a evolutionary process rather than a revolution. The why there is simple. They need to watch for each other when we do the transformation. And it needs to support all the stakeholders within an ecosystem. That means if you do a revolution, people get naturally anxious because our history has taught that everything that's revolted didn't necessarily have a transitionary space. And I think that transitionary space is very important. Now, we can, for example, quantify it. In my country, the Netherlands, we see that about 250,000 people are not yet identified with healthcare and the abrupt uptake of these patients within the health system. I mean, two things, loss of life and unexpected cost. It's very pragmatic. Uh, from a global perspective, I also volunteered in Africa when I was 34. There are like 17.7 million people that were not able to reach in time. The way I see it, so my PhD now is at Erasmus Medical Center, and it's the largest hospital in Europe and the 20th worldwide. And the reason why I've chosen them is they have power in that sense, just on the absolute academic field. And I think if you want the other part of my studies go with the health policy. Now, what's the benefit of having that combination? It's like coming up with a model for ecosystem innovation. And the bottom line here is AI, of course, to have a system everybody in the world can unite behind. And for that, to bridge the gap with how we started the conversation, most people tend to look a uniform view on AI on the commercial side. And I think they can go together if we harness the transitional space. And now keeping that simple, we call that unifying behind a shared purpose with a coalition of the willing. So you find people who are eager to get the job done, who are resilient in nature and can be provocative when they need to. On the other end, you need to bind people from various walks of life. And I think the easiest thing is if you can mitigate and share the purpose why you're doing it for something that I call convergence economics. That's a very old understanding. Basically, it's how can you unite the global south with the global north? And the takeaway there is I'm having conversations with people from the UN and WHO on the same to get wow. that thing moving. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate mm. and some very, very inspirational purpose and objective behind your work. Mm. I want to ask more about your work at the WHO and about your research, but before we do, I think it might be helpful if you could explain how you're using the AI. What's the value proposition of using AI in this context? So I think it's an interesting question. So first I'll start with the definition of AI and two, the value proposition. Now I've been a marketer for Philips too, and it gave me the look in what a value proposition would mean. And that's usually the type of thing 
or the pain point that you try to prevent. And uh, what a good marketer or a strategist knows is that different divers appeal different to people. So the value proposition of AI is different to a CEO of a hospital. It's different to a legislator and it's different to a clinician. And talking about patient or customer centricity, I think they're the same. What does it mean for them? The second, what is an AI and artificial intelligence? So there are various degrees. We've clubbed them together to make it convenient. And there are three tiers when it comes to cardiology. One would be the in-hospital analysis of, for example, imaging or ECG readings. So that's the known domain in hospital setting where you can apply AI and then it's on the functional level. The AI is a tool for efficiency. In the broadest sense, it should make our lives a little bit easier, but without the system around it, it doesn't work. I see it as the car radio. So a car radio is very nice, but you would still need four wheels, a chassis and an engine to get it moving. AI is a tool for efficiency within the cardiology space to improve accuracy on readings. But let's say you're doing an examination and you're average person. It's tricky stuff. So you would like to see a good diagnosis with as high enough accuracy as soon as possible because you're in an anxious situation. The value proposition there is reduce stress, improve outcome. And if you do that at scale. And at scale is a organization. So if AI is very scalable in its sense, a second tier would be out of hospital, very logical. And then you would have the definition of already being a patient. And the third tier is a digital self-care intervention to name a term. So to, to summarize the value proposition, I think it would be different for each individual. And if you're the CEO, you look at how to scale, how to do it cost-efficient. What problems does it solve? If you're an administrator, does it ease the burden of employee working hour planning? And is it more cost-effective than what we do? Because it needs to work, right? From a societal point of view, and I've done this in detail, the cost to care for cardiology to make that measurable, it's 1.4 billion US dollar per day. So the market potential is huge. The adverse effect there is that you may attract the wrong crowd of people who are willing to solve the problem. Per my view, the right incentive to make it through the end is if you take the holistic view, look at the value propositions for all the stakeholders, most of all the clinician, because the clinician, let's make it a practical Dutch example with a, a, a top tier health system. And, but what we see is that the average person is driven to the hospital late Friday night. It never happens at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday. And so it always comes unexpected and that shock absorbs or overflows the health system. And we've seen that with the Corona too. So I think the system is geared to providing the best service at an average moment. And the cracks always show at an unaverage moment. So I think AI can help mitigate both the cost and the clinical outcome on the three levels in hospital, outpatient and digital self-care. Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, say I'm a patient, the AI allows me to track firstly my well-being or my health, then identify early prognostics or how inclined I might be to have a cardiac arrest or some form of heart-related problem, and then provide the hospital with the information about that so that the shock is less if and when that flare-up happens. Is that correct? Yes. 
That is correct. So it's about an ecosystem innovation. And what we've just described are the individual actors that need to harmonize both on the regional, but also in the context of global healthcare. Right. And in the context of global healthcare, obviously you're coming from, as you said, from the Netherlands where the system is very advanced and very efficient, well, more advanced than a lot of places. Let's put it that way. How do you go about encouraging the widespread use of such technology? In And I guess this kind of relates back to what you're saying about ecosystem innovation. How do you encourage the providers of the technology, the people who make that technology, to find value in expanding their position into markets where perhaps there's not the economic incentive? You need the crazy people that care in that sense. And there are plenty. But what I see is that we have an unequal distribution, so it's an obstacle to the adaptation of medical AI. And I think what I hinted to in the beginning, how to overcome is to unite behind the purpose. Crazy enough, I think Mr. Jobs said to say, you need someone who's incredibly dedicated to making these things happen and who are willing to persevere, be resilient in it. Understand both the business as the human dynamics in it and have the heart to switch between the two. Compassionate when it comes to the context of global healthcare. I was invited, for which I was very humbled, two years ago at the strategy briefings at the World Health Organization, which was unique because I'm not a nation member. <laughs> what I learned there is, again, we move as fast as the slowest, and slowest, I mean, with the highest form of respect, because part of the solution is that we have a not equally distributed system, and having such a system would take away the incentives for some parties to innovate properly. So it's, it's a bit of a catch-22, if that makes sense. I'm not sure I fully understand what you mean. Could you elaborate a little bit more? So with the development parts, what I'm trying to suggest is that the world in itself is pretty well balanced. I think all the solutions are here to automatically fix all the things that we have, but it requires the one thing we're lacking, and I think that's a certain kind of empathy to our fellow men. So let's take it that the food thing, I think it was the earliest 1900s. So you have the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And I think we already are up to our second version of the SDGs. They're not different than the ones that we did like 40 or 50 years ago. It's tough because if you volunteered in these markets, you see that the world isn't equal. And to look at it from a business point of view, we're not able to help everybody at the same time, but I do think that we have the capacity to make a change. One of the great equalizers in that sense, per my view, I think there is enough food in the world, but we lack the distributional logistics. So it's a logistics problem in that sense. Uh, logistics can be twofold. Either you move the people closer to the food or you move the food closer to the people. And it's that simple. From a technology point of view on AI, I think we're finally at a point where the style of solution that we have is more scalable on regional levels. And I put my inspirations from the fintech solutions. Now, if you've been to Africa, there is not a bank in sight, but everybody has a cell phone. It's amazing how without what we would call in the rich West and solid infrastructure, they all have a cell phone and there is pretty good coverage. It's amazing. And everybody has a bank account. That's, I think, where digital self-care intervention is a very scalable uh, solution. 
and that may be different with food because you cannot text a sandwich, but you can democratize healthcare. And with that confidence, you are potentially able to give an ease of mind to the people that they are healthy. If there is work, you can participate in that, for example, and then slowly, but surely, I think it's an American saying gradually and then suddenly. So I think we should look out for these early signals and that we're on the break of something very positive. Every time I have a conversation with you, you fill me with positivity. And I'm very grateful for you for that. And definitely when it comes to the growth and expansion of AI, I mean, you've mentioned food and healthcare, but there's so many different applications where this new technology could be majorly transformative. It's definitely a really exciting space to watch. What would you say to someone who says it's great being able to have that diagnostic, but what about the scenario where I get told by the AI that I have early signs of something? That's an interesting point. I've been in healthcare my entire working life, which is now 14 years, and I've made a very steep growth. Uh, my second job was to implement advanced chemotherapy for patients with a limited span of life left, usually two to four months. I was 27 at the time. And my counterpart was a professor, Dr. Dick Hichel. And I remember every Friday afternoon, we would eat these mushy cheese sandwiches because, of course, we were always late because we were working. And all the artificials took away the good sandwiches. But I think those were the tastiest cheese sandwiches I've ever had. What he learned me is that we have the right not to be cured. Meaning? If you don't want to, that's fine. But it should be a choice. The AI gives you that choice and the knowledge. Is that what you, you choose mean? not to choose life? And it's a very legitimate choice. So this goes, I think, to, to the edge of where most people feel comfortable to discuss this. But for physicians, it's a meaningful conversation to have because you would like to hypothesize on what's the alternate answer to that question. So what does a tech guy like myself do with the existentials? I don't have an answer to that, but what I know is it's the same as a GDPR. You have the right to be forgotten when it comes to GDPR data, but you also have the right not to choose life. And you have the right to learn the options. But you also have the right to, but it should be a right. And it's not a nice thing to have. What's coming across is that your career or the work that you do comes into contact with a lot of very deep human questions and challenges. So what brought you into this space? What drives you? And what do you see as your purpose within this field? So that's a very complete question. So thank you for that. If there is such a thing as a purpose-driven person, and it depends on philosophy, I think I'm perfectly attuned to do what I'm doing now. So I can have the business sense, and look at it from an economic perspective and be very business-like on that. But on the other hand, I'm empathetic enough and understanding enough to bridge that gaps between various stakeholders in the field. And I think with hard work, balancing the leadership challenges there with the opportunities that are in the market, and in that sense, help to facilitate an evolution in healthcare or with the transformation. Um, and, and why its purpose, I think. So you, you, you would know Yeah, you choose a direction where it feels in logic to do that. Although it doesn't make sense to X, Y, or Z, 
But for you, it makes sense. And I think that's instrumental in fully developing yourself. So it, it works well for you and you're happy with, you know, the direction that you've chosen. Well, on a good day, yes. <laughs> we never know because it's hard. It's super hard. The thing is, a friend of mine works at a healthcare insurer. I haven't mentioned them so far, but she said, well, you're crafting. If you look at the individual who's Richard, I'm crafting my own path in that sense. And that's per definition. Yeah, I need to be kind on the days where it, it seems slow going. Uh, so we zoom in and, and we zoom out in that sense. But mm -hmm. I think for me, it's a, and, and I'm, I'm being explicit here because I would think that a lot of people are very much different in that, that they go to work. <laughs> get a dog and I think getting a dog or a cat is a great idea and do that. So but I'm very curious and I'd like to understand things and be of value on the long term and sharing what I've learned and hopefully to be of a positive impact. And then I love it. So it, it resonates very deeply within. And I think that's in the books, you really have various names for it. You couldn't call it in Ikigai. There are various terms and various things. But I think you'll, you'll, you'll feel it. And in that sense, I think Nietzsche or Jung said the same. So if you take a long-term choice, choose with the heart. If you do something pragmatic, then make it a short-term decision and balance between the two. You mentioned a little bit earlier that there's difficult days and days that are challenging. And I think you kind of hinted to some of the challenges beforehand, but would you, for the audience, could you kind of elaborate on what the key challenges are that you face in your role? What are the, the big things that keep you up at night? I tend to sleep pretty short and I think it's because timing is very difficult to get. And I think the cadence of things is a challenge. So of course you need to have the variables and it's always down to, um, because it's an expensive thing. It takes a lot of time. You need to keep people engaged. Sometimes you're not clear on where the end will be and when will that be reached. In my view, you have two types of people. One of the professors I like to listen to, and she's very pragmatic, Rita McGrath. She, it's discovery-driven growth in that sense. So we, it's very difficult to exactly predict everything in advance, how things will go. The challenge there, if you limit it too much, and it's the same goes with AI. So if you gap the potential scope, it will never grow better than that scope. And I think striking the balance between the two is for me, most challenging. And I think then comes, how are we able to sustain it? Because I put a lot of my own resources in it and it's a terribly expensive hobby to have because research you don't get, yeah, I do it because I'm passionate about it, but ultimately there are different things. So if you'd like to commercialize it, you're bound with investors in an early stage, what you wouldn't like to do because 1970s taught us that you need a combination of both, but what I said, you need a coalition of the willing. And the same goes with investors too, because it's, it's a very oversightful system. Um, but yeah, you need to, and, and yeah, those are the challenges. You mentioned like you're talking to lots of different stakeholders. Yes. I imagine that leading from the front in that situation is complicated. Um, what, how do you as a leader lead in that scenario? I think Peter Drucker is one of the best management things and there are a lot, but leadership is not always a march. So we tend to look at this military style, but it's more like a dance. It's not always when to step forward, 
but also when to step sideways or backwards. Uh, my leadership style in that sense, I think a lot. So I make a good idea where we should be going, what makes sense. So I start from where I need to be, then go backward. And then I facilitate the conversations and help steer it in the desired direction. With one thought, it needs to be in accordance with the grade of things. It's almost a Chinese old variable of Wu Wei. It means not forcing. And we need to be very careful not to force things to happen because it gets clogged up and people tend to feel it. Giving an answer to this question is like a painting. It's never finished. The people I tend to work with are capable. And I think there's nothing more challenging or more fun to work with people that are capable. Usually we find each other on the purpose. I'm a millennial, so I have the privilege of working for boomers, and it can be a difference. <laughs> on the other hand, so next to a leader, I'm a coach too. I'm a tutor, so you need to be all these things, and you need to be a facilitator with the boomers because, uh, well, they're they're not always. Yeah, that's a challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. So there, there there are no complete answers to your questions, but I do think that I'm an innovator kind of person. And that means y you need to be thick-skinned, which is a challenge because on the other hand, thick-skinned for the boomers and uh, more kind for the younger generations because, and I'll make a joke, avocado toast doesn't go well with a very rigid structure. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. And now it makes a lot of sense You're talking about in your context as a leader trying to implement a large technological change that goes to the core of the practice, right? I guess what I'm trying to get at is something that comes up a lot in this podcast and with people that I speak to about technology and leading technological innovation and change is that resistance to the change and trying to come up with ways of creating a transformation as you said, not making it a revolution, allowing it to be a transformation where people feel included and that their perspective is valued and validated from what you're saying in terms of the boomers and having both generations on either end. Um, it's something that I've thought about a lot lately is, is how millennials, millennial leaders especially, oh, you got it on both ends. You're straddling two very different ways of thinking about how we work and what we value. What would you say are the lessons from leadership from the boomers that you're going to take on board and that are valuable in the long run? I value their experience foremost. I do not necessarily always agree with the methods of delivery, but I also have compassionate enough to understand that they had a generation before them and that helps. That makes it tangible. So they're not necessarily always comfortable with what I say or do, but you need to find each other on mutual respect. I'm big on the respect part because that's something you can always give to someone in whatever situation. They're tough people in that sense. I have the luck to, so I'm part of various groups in the Netherlands, tied to Netherlands, uh, very blood and deep. So I'm also part of many to a fraternity. And so they're a, a luster group of gentlemen. And when I learn from them, they're, they're like super tough. These are all these former ex-Navy SEAL kind of guys and they're tough. And for me as a, as a guy, we need that tough love in in that sense too so i think bridging that gap between the generations that's come behind me 
or after me. You need to mitigate both the knowledge from them. And, and I think the best leaders in that sense, what I aim to be, and I realize I'm not perfect, is to mitigate those interests, mm-hmm. balance as far as possible. I think that's, I think that's the best way to go. And for audience yeah. members listening, you're thinking about leadership strategies and trying to manage a lot of different perspectives and in any industry I think that we're all kind of going through the same thing with a set of people in management or in leadership who have different values to the people who are delivering and then again different values to people on the ground and it's definitely important what you said about listening and mitigating the different perspectives and trying to find middle ground between them so that everyone feels like they're included in the transformation so thank you I think that's really a great point to make and a great thought i have one last question for you before we go which is one that i'm asking everyone in their podcast which is what is the ideal scenario with your work at the moment in 50 years time if you have the impact that you want to have and your work has done what it needs to do what are we looking at well i'd like to end global heart disease I'll stop. When that's done, I'll probably be on the boat somewhere in front of a coast just with a fishing rod. I've never done that, but I've set myself that target to help end global heart disease within the next 10 years to reach 500 to 700 million people with the solution that we envision and try to make ready today. Nice. That's a great, a great, I think a great place to end. Um, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Good luck with ending global heart disease um it's a lofty ambition but i'm one that i have no doubts in my mind that you are able to conquer um thank you again for joining us and finally is there anywhere that the audience can go if they want to connect with you or if they want to find out more about your work well i can recommend connecting via linkedin i think it's the platform i use most i answer almost all messages within 48 hours but websites and stuff we don't do but yeah stay stay tuned fantastic well thank you again and have a wonderful rest of your day thank you anna thank you so much thank you so much for listening to this episode of tech beyond the hype and a huge thank you to richard dasselaar for being such a great guest there is so much hype around artificial intelligence at the moment and a lot of focus on the potential harms that this tech could have on society I hope this episode has offered you a fresh perspective and that you come away with a more objective understanding of the potential positive impact that AI can have. Personally, I found Richard's insights on the challenges in democratizing access to this technology really enlightening. As we move towards a sustainable digital future, entire business ecosystems will need to be redesigned to ensure that everyone can benefit. Richard wisely reminds us that bringing about this sort of change requires a coalition of the willing. This means that we need more leaders and teams to start thinking beyond short-term profits and prioritizing the creation of inclusive and compassionate solutions that add value to everyone's life. If you've enjoyed this episode of Tech Beyond the Hype, please do make sure to like, comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show and if there are any big hypes that you want us to delve into next. Tech Beyond the Hype is a Tech Target original production.